Welcome to Sounds Like, the podcast brought to you by the horse's mouth. We explore how brands connect with their audiences through audio, hosting conversations between industry leaders and creators who have consistently forged authentic relationships with their clients and communities. No fluff, no filter, straight from the horse's mouth. Hi, I'm Mike Benson, and today I'm very excited to have a conversation with two of the UK's leading lights in high street and urban regeneration, Mark Robinson and Alan Anthony. Mark Robinson is co-founder of Alandi, UK's leading independent prop co, which means property company to you and me, and chair of the High Street Task Force, an alliance of placemaking experts working to redefine the high street. Alan Anthony is an architect, managing director, founder and owner of 360 Architecture. He's board director of Revo, which is a retail property and placemaking community, and the chair of Revo Scotland, who support the people and businesses of retail property and placemaking to thrive and prosper. With a promise to energise and drive progress for our community. Alan and Mark, hello. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Where are you, Alan, and how are you today? I am in Paisley, uh, a small village just outside of Glasgow, and I'm well. It's Friday. Superb. And Mark Robinson, where do we find you today, and how are you? This morning, like most mornings, I'm in Ballam, gateway to the south, as Peter Sellers put it. Um, I'm a little bit hungover, if I'm honest, and it's down to your compatriots. I was on a wine, virtual Zoom wine tasting last night with a firm of Scottish uh, lawyers who kindly sent me a six half bottles of wine, which I polished off with my teenage daughter last night. Superb. Anything you can get off a lawyer is worthwhile, I'd say. Would you mind both, one at a time if possible, telling us a little bit about your companies and the roles outside the companies that you play? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Mark. Okay, well, I've, I've worked in retail property for the best part of three decades now, and that's been on an advisory side as an agent, advising owners and occupiers through to working at a big retail consortium, um, helping them with their property strategy and delivering units. And then, crikey, yes, it's getting on for nearly 20 years now. I've, I've run a couple of property companies that I set up myself. Um, I'd always had a passion for development, and that's why I wanted to set up my own business, and that's what we first did at Larrick and then we wanted to do it at Landy, but um, one-off developments are no longer the answer to the problems we have on our high streets. It's about more comprehensive regeneration. So I wouldn't describe a Landy as a development business or an investment business anymore now. Um, it's about this whole repurposing piece because there's very few places in the UK that don't need comprehensive repurposing, which is what the business is all about now. My side hustle, as I like to call it, is being chair of the government's high street task force which is an interesting one. It's a, it's a concerted effort by the government to really try and address some of the problems that we have in the high street. Um, they are putting aside quite a lot of money to achieve this. It's up to eight billion pounds. But the task force is all about building capacity in local places. It's about building expertise, building capacity, promoting collaboration and providing information and best practice and learning to enable and empower local communities to take control of their own place to deliver the change that people really need. Is it working? It's early days, if I'm honest. I mean, you know, like, like many things in the world at the moment, um, COVID kind of got in the way. So the task force was set up in 2019. I was asked to chair the board um, halfway through last year. But the focus on behalf of government has been working with places to help them with their COVID response and reopening. Okay. 
watching the space as we go along. Alan Anthony, please tell us a little bit about your company and the roles that you play outside of that too. Um, as you, you said, I'm the, the managing director of 360 Architecture, uh, which is a company we set up 15 years ago now. Um, I've been in architecture uh, since I started studying it 35 years ago, which uh, dawned on me the other day, which made me feel a bit older. What we do as architects, uh, we're based in Glasgow uh, and, and Inverness, um, but we work across the UK and we work across all sectors. Uh, by that I mean that we, we have designed health care facilities, residential leisure and a hell of a lot of retail in the past. Um, so we found ourselves in the last couple of years adapting with our retail clients to say, well, there's a decline in the requirement for retail and how does it reinvent itself? And that's become fantastically interesting for us because we, we can now get all the other streams of the work that we do and use that to start repairing town centres where retail had the dominance. Um, so that's uh, quite exciting for that side of my life. Uh, another part of my life is being the Scottish chairman of uh, Revo and most recently, uh, I suppose, elevated to the director in, in the UK for Revo, one of the directors. And Revo is the retail property and placemaking community. So it works across a wide remit. It's 37, established 37 years more than I've established in architecture. And it's focused on representing the interests of its wide community. So it could be centre management there, but there's a lot of property professionals and developers uh, like Mark, Mark's company, or consultants like mine. And why I'm there, I suppose I'm trying to make sure that it maintains an interest and it, it leads, helps lead the way on the regeneration of our town centres, as um, much aligned with Mark's uh, organisation, High Street Task Force. It's really fascinating that you both found yourselves in this specialising or, or focusing on this field, you know, one property guy and an architect respectively. You know, this journey from maybe the conventional roles that um, these career titles or I don't know how you would say it, I guess, just your the, the name of your profession to then focusing on making and fixing places rather than just building and making profit. What's the switch that happens for or that happened for you to go from, you know, trying to get on in life and, and you know, make do architecture, do development into really repairing places and fixing communities or, or even helping to develop them? Oh, where to begin? I mean, one of the problems we have is that retail as a use was far too successful for too long. You know, we've got a very consumer-based economy, often fueled by too much debt, and that led to a very successful retail industry. Um, it led to the growth of department stores that sprang up in every town in the UK. And this very valuable retail use drove out all of the other uses that used to make our places great. And the model that in previous lives, Alan and myself would have been, it's all about development, build it and they will come. You know, the whole field of dreams approach to town centre regeneration. If you build a bigger and better shopping centre than your next town, you'll do better. And that's that model's completely broken now because 
we're not, you know, consumer growth isn't what it was. And obviously excess growth is very much being swallowed up by the internet and out of town shopping as well, which is a huge factor. So, you know, we have this challenge of having created these clone towns across the UK, 400 clone towns, which effectively look like each other. Um, and actually nobody loved them. So we shouldn't be sort of bemoaning the fact that these clone towns are, are literally dying in, in many circumstances, because what it does is give us the opportunity to bring in all those uses that should have been in a town centre to make it this community hub, which is the key to a successful place. And I, I rail against the sort of dichotomy that you do sort of have in the industry and in narrative that there's you can either be interested in money or you can be interested in community. I think the two things are completely and utterly aligned. You don't have a successful place financially unless you take your community with you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what, what do you see as the as the secret then to successful high streets or urban regeneration? It sounds like we can understand where we went wrong in the UK and potentially around the world. How do we fix this? What are the things that matter the most to Alan? What do you think? So what uh, what do you need in the high street or the town centre to, to fix this? As Mark said, we need to rebalance. Uh, so when I do a presentation, I, uh, I'll show us a, a slide of what it is now and then explain what's in the town centre now, what was in it 10 years ago. And then uh, I say what needs to be in it next. And when I, the, the next slide is a slide of that town centre 40, 50 years ago, because that's where we need to go. We need to go back and, and bring in the uses that were squeezed out by the retail dominance. Um, whether those are cinema, take them out of the retail parks, put them in the town centre. Uh, or whether it's healthcare, take them from the edge of town, put it in the town centre. All these things, all these uses you can think of, especially if it's public funded, should be banged into the town centre because then it'll be busy and retail goes where people go. Retail will come back, it'll be different and it won't be clone town as Mark said, it'll be of its place related to the story of that town and the people of that town and the community of that town. So those are the things you've got to bring back. There's uh, so much more to do and I'm sure we'll touch on it later. Yeah, I mean, I know this is something that Alan and his business are particularly strong on, is this idea of creating a shared vision for your place. Um, and it, there's a methodology he's developed, which is absolutely fantastic. The only thing I would sort of add on to that, which, which comes off it, is really understanding the purpose of place. You know, I, I do quite a few webinars and you know, often ask, what, what uses should we bring back into our town centre to make our town centres better? Mm. And that's looking at it the wrong way. It's asking, you know, to, to coin Simon Senek's approach, that's asking the what question, not the why question. Let's think about why our places should exist, why people want to go there and build from there, as opposed to just saying, our town will be fixed if we add a health centre, a food hall and a cinema because you see places where they've they've made all the moves, they've done the textbook moves to regenerate the town centre, and it still doesn't work because it isn't of the community, it isn't of the place, and it doesn't create a cohesive narrative about what that place is all about. So purposeful visioning, if we're going to coin a phrase on this podcast, is, is the way forward in my view. <laughs> yes, I think this is where our whole conversation started about... Um town centre and urban regeneration was about this, the crossover between your approach to high street and urban regeneration and my experience in branding Wally Ollins, who is widely recognised as the godfather of modern purpose-driven branding, dedicated his whole later career to place branding on its own. Um, there's so much crossover between the way that you look at 
this and the way that my traditional branding background covers what's the why who's it for um and and kind of most importantly not just what you do but how you do it you know that's that's what differentiates one organization from another and it's what organize uh, can differentiate one place from another and to me the interesting challenge is that place making with purpose or visioning with purpose i imagine it's very easy for certain towns that are blessed with an exciting new museum let's say dundee has got a new vna right and you can use that as a, a as an iconic magnet to to start building ideas around or whether it's you know you get an olympic games or you know you get a commonwealth games and all of a sudden we can talk about bringing people together in wellness and well-being and fitness and and togetherness but what if you're not lucky enough you don't get your andrew gormley sculpture um you know you're a gormless town and you have to find your purpose and you maybe it was mining in the past but but now there's no real story to talk about how do you how do you find that purpose and how do you tell that story to the people living and working there you don't i mean as you know because you, you've worked with us on uh, one of the visions that we did uh, for a large town in scotland that um these large towns don't have one story. They're not one-track ponies, and, and, and we don't apply. We never apply the story. You've got to rediscover the story or just discover it because it was you never discovered it before, and maybe it's different from what it was now. It's not always historical. So Dundee is about digital arts, where all the games companies are based there, etc. Um, that's one of their stories, as is Jute and Jam. Um, so how do we find these, these stories? And you're willing. Uh, they were Willie, yes, in the Bruins. Um, so when, how do we rediscover these stories? How do we find these stories? Um, it's it's through community engagement. And I know that Mark's uh, got an offshoot company that, that, that does that fantastically. Um, and he's right. The world's full of architects like us. Well, not like us. The world's full of architects will come in and tell you what you need. And this is what you're getting. There's your food hall you're going to be the new Altrincham. This is going to regenerate you. It's so important that you go in. And the one thing that we're trying to do that is successful, and you don't need a V&A museum to do it, is reconnect the whole community back to their town centre. Because then you will have a healthy community if you have a healthy town centre, and I mean in terms of well-being. And to do that, you need to understand what they need from the town centre that isn't there. And it's different in every town. There'll be recurring themes. Um, you know, there's a recurring theme of staying and living in the town centre, residential. But not everyone needs a foothold, not everyone needs a cinema there. Um, so these, I think that is really important that, you know, we don't apply what we, what we think, that we, communic we communicate with the community and find out what they need. But I also would conversely say that if companies like mine are working at, on this across the UK and are, are looking at what's happening in the rest of the world, we have, a, we have an opportunity to bring ideas to the table as well, because you don't know what you don't know. So we don't apply them. We say, look, here's an opportunity that's worked there. Do you think it'd work here? Yeah, there's a, crikey, there's a couple of things to pick up here. Um, really interesting point, Mike, about using brand identity to inform place. Um, now, 
I've heard that in York, now York is not a place that is gormless, York is gorgeous clearly, so they've got a head start. But I think it's fair to say that they have got a new brand identity and I know that they are using that brand identity to inform every single decision they make about the place. So if, they, you ha if they're going to put a new school into York, they will filter it through the brand identity to make sure that school is a York school. And I think that's brilliant, wonderful and inspirational. The other thing we haven't talked about, and I know Alan and I are very much aligned on this thinking, yes, you have to have deep and sincere community engagement. A lot of engagement from the property industry previously was, we're going to build this, what do you think? Now, that, that is not the answer. But, um, and you've got to listen, but at the same time, you've got to do your research. And I think data-led insight is the key to getting this right. Because people will have perceptions of their place, and especially when you're talking about major moves in a town centre, it is very political. And sometimes those political considerations or the misconception of what the place is can override common sense. And being able to go to the data and look to the data about trying to sketch out what the what the place currently is and what its potential is can be hugely informative as well. And, you know, Alan won't mind me saying this because I've said it a number of times when he's been in the room, but, you know, often with placemaking, um, the problem is they bring the architects in too, too early. They get their crayons out too quickly because everybody wants to see what's it going to look like? What's it going to look like? You know, what, what's the cinema going to look like? And actually, you really need to think about the, the consumer engagement, the community engagement, and look to the data and really understand why that place works or doesn't work at the moment. But more importantly, what the potential of the place is as well. So what kind of data do you look at then? Well, you, you, you know, we're in an age where we've never had more data and it's actually trying to filter the mm -hmm. data to what's important to you. And I think we're, only, we're, we're starting on a journey at the moment. I mean, footfall is measures vitality, but where are the people coming from? How, how wealthy are they? What, what are their interests? How old are they? But more importantly, where do they go next? What's the interconnectivity of the place? If you do, you know, we, we're working on a... a a clinical conditioning group, um, 38,000 square feet of healthcare to go into a shopping centre, which actually Alan's business is working with us on. And we've made the business case to the local authority because what we did is we, we mapped all of the other GP surgeries that are going to be moved into this health centre. And we worked out a million people visit those separate GP surgeries. And if you bring them all together in the town centre, that's a million extra people coming to this town centre, which is going to be a massive boost to vitality of that place. Incredible. Are you able to tell us where that is or is that under wraps at the moment? It's a little bit under wraps at the moment because I don't think they've got cabinet approval for the expenditure, but it's, it's going to be market leading when it happens. Very excited about it. Oh, incredible. We'll have to catch up with you on that. I would say on data, Mike, uh, that, you know, we as a practice, our, our converts don't let the architects in there first or let them in to help gather the data and uh, digest the data and make it into pretty little pie charts for Mark's team um, I, so we can communicate that data and it's so important because otherwise you're in situations when you're with a community or a council where the loudest voice is heard most and it's not necessarily got the right idea and actually community empowerment is a is a big thing in Scotland um, and it's not always, unless you've done the data gathering and you've created your vision, there's no guarantee that what the community will come up with is the right thing for the town. But if they shout loud enough, that's what will happen, and it will happen in a disjointed way. So we're very interested in working to the data and working to a cohesive vision so that everything that happens is part of one big story and doesn't work against something. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the shortcomings 
of community engagement is it tends it you you just hear from the loudest voices and they tend to skew towards a middle class retired demographic if you're honest because they're the people who've got enough time on their hands to stick their oar in so how do you reach the people who are underrepresented how do you reach the people who don't have a voice interestingly how do you reach the people who aren't engaged with the place because they're the people you want to get back involved um and actually to to give architects a bit of credit and this is a you know big credit to alan and his business is they are actually great storytellers architects generally that tends to attract that sort of person into that industry so when you do get your vision together playing it back to people architects have got a you know great architects are superb at it yeah and, and community to you in the context of an urban center what does it mean? What matters again? And who's included in that? Do you include retailers? Do you include investors and developers? Or are you talking really about the citizens of a town? Or are you talking about visitors as well? It's every stakeholder. Um, so everyone. Yeah. I mean, there is the, the growth of the narrative around community and placemaking is wonderfully inspirational. I mean, you know, I'm not going to lay claim to have invented the expression, but we were certainly the first business to start talking about community shopping centres about five or six years ago, and now everybody talks about them. So that's great. So the, the what does that mean? Well, it tends to be it's a it's a shopping centre that's embedded in its community. That's not just about retail. It's got all the other uses that make that place thrive and give that place the its identity. Um, so that's you know that's a really strong narrative at the moment. There's um, a brilliant organisation called Power to Change, and the CEO uh, Vidya Alexson is on the High Street board, and she brings such a wealth of knowledge and passion about bringing community into placemaking. But there's a limit to how much that can do, and what does worry about some of the narrative that we are seeing in placemaking is that community wealth building is going to solve all of our problems in town centres. We are still going to need those investors. Um, the challenge we have across the UK is enormous. You know, you can see it with the decline of the traditional shops and the traditional high street. And Sir Bob Kerslake's done a report, um, which I think is called Go Big or Go Home, about the levelling up agenda in the UK. And he's likened the challenge we have to the reunification of Germany. And that cost 1.9 trillion euros. So if you think it's of that sort of scale, we ain't going to get there by just having community uses. We are going to have to get investors excited about investing in our town centres and places again and because at the moment they're running for the hills yeah that's absolutely uh cr critical wow and is that happening across europe this is this is an interesting topic which i could talk for an hour on which i'm not going to but europe doesn't europe doesn't quite have the problems that we have we have got a very anglo-saxon model to the way we design the topography of our retail places so these malls and these town centres, which are anchored by department stores, is a very UK and a very US thing. So the stats are there's 13, well, this is three years ago. So three years ago, there were 13 department stores per million people in the States. There's 11 department stores per million people in the UK. In France, the figure is 1.8 and in Germany, it's 2.4. So they've got a completely different way of using their town centres. And unfortunately, the Internet is a department store killer. Because if you think about it, you know, when you were growing up in Paisley and you couldn't afford the bus fare into, uh, into Glasgow or what have you, you could go to a department store in Paisley and that'd be everything. You'd have everything there. It was like the internet, but in a 60,000 square foot building. And now people don't need that anymore. So that's why you've seen these collapses of how, you know, Fraser's, Debenhams, etc. because that is one particular business model that was particularly susceptible to the internet. And it's that 
anchor use that then anchor the rest of our town centre. So we've got to unravel this whole ecosystem to move forward, which is a hell of a challenge, but it's also a hell of an opportunity as well. Sure, and that's something that you're both engaged with um, repurposing failing shopping centres and and failing um, department stores as well. Alan, can you... I, I know there's a whole element to your urban regeneration work that, that kind of relies upon that in a way. Well, uh, I think just cycle back a little bit and talk about the private sector being needed as part of this uh, recovery. Um, where our projects are successful it's where it's got the private public and the community and where we do visions for town centres they are as much about inspiring business to invest in the town and showing a town with attitude and ambition that they can invest in as they are about working out what the community want and giving them what they want and um, I think in, in the pilot project that we did for the Scottish Government was in Paisley um, and uh, do, do I get fined 50 pence every time somebody mentions Paisley? Um, no, no, say it again. I was born there um, to Paisley. And I, I'm and, joining and, in. And <laughs> Mark's adopted. Um, the, <laughs> and investors come into the town to buy the shopping centre and deliver along the lines of the Paisley vision. This is game-changing. This is the one bold move. This is the move that can happen in most towns because most towns have a, an urban high street anchored failing, struggling shopping centre. And this investor bought that centre and citing he was encouraged by the vision. He was encouraged by many other opportunities as well. But this opportunity lies in most of our significantly sized town centres. And if we can take that one site, so 45% of tail in that town was in that centre and it's half empty at best. So the idea is take what's left, push it to the edges, activate the streets, in the middle, you have a development platform where you can bring in your new uses that that town needs and mixed with residential, you've got a new quarter, you have new streets. You Not only is your perception of the town different, your physical perception of moving through the town is different. And that won't happen for five years because it takes a while to get designed, planning, built. That's why the visions that, that we work on are so important. So people can see the destination and get excited about it not only make it happen, but be satisfied it's going the right direction and, and, and remain excited and remain aligned. So, yeah, shopping centres are failing. I love them. <laughs> yeah, I think look, Alan's absolutely correct. Um, you know, it would be very easy. In fact, if you just had your entire attitude dictated to you by what you read in the Sunday papers, you'd be, if you were to do what I do for a living, you'd be sort of clinically depressed and I'm far from it. I genuinely think this is the biggest opportunity for my industry and for people who care about place in the post-war period. It is like post-war reconstruction, frankly. Um, but to get there, we're going to have to do a lot of, and another buzzword for you, de-malling. De-malling. So, de-malling, yes. So getting rid of mal. So. so you say mal, I say mall. Is mall the American pronunciation? Well, you, you lived in the States, so I'm probably pronouncing it wrong then. I've no idea. A, a really good example to, to cite is probably um, Stockton, where there were two failing shopping centres and uh, the local authority have bought both, um, decanted or in the process of decanting the tenants from one to the other to have one thriving shopping centre. And then that gives them the opportunity to demolish a pretty horrific 1970s shopping centre that blocked off the town from the river. And they're going to create a park, which is four times the size of Trafalgar Square, giving direct access to the river. 
um, you know, so there's some major moves going on and uh, it's very brave um, places to do that, but they can only do that, strangely enough, if they've got a sense of purpose about their place and a clear vision of what they want it to be. Yeah, and it really sounds like it's a mix of commerce and community and being visionary and also connecting to environment, which no business, no human being can really avoid considering now, whatever industry they're in or whatever their interests, you know, for both for human well-being, for nat for wildlife and, and to to respect the uh, the nature that we are part of. Well, I think uh, we de demolling. Um, you'll find in a lot of urban shopping centres that uh, the the mall is where a street used to be, and it's still got that street's name, Kingsgate, something like that. And what we need to do now is actually take that roof off that mall, destroy the most expensive part of a shopping centre to build the mall, and open it up because uses other than retail. They don't want to be clustered around a mall environment, a sanitised environment in, in many cases. And again, let's go back to the 50s, it's back to the future. Open up the streets again, open up that permeability, fresh air, more urban realm. Uh, it's not only green um, in, in terms of the greening it up with, with plants and, and open air for people to move through and the health that that generates, but for God's sakes, town centres. Where is the greenest place to development for development in terms of the climate emergency? The place that every mode of transport goes to, not the periphery of town. The concentration of uses is one of the greenest things we can do. The repurposing and reuse of existing structure is one of the greenest things we can do. So that's exciting. I'm with Mark. This is the most exciting time in my career. And I don't know if it's a midlife crisis or it's just what's happening in the world. Well, that'll be in 20 years' time, surely, Alan. I, I, I. <laughs> no, I'm from a certain area. Um, the, I think that this is the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for all of us to, to get it right. And we've got to get it right. And, and I sometimes feel that screaming at people saying, no, you don't need to just repurpose that 10% of your shopping centre. You need to... You need to assume you're going to take 50% of it down or you're going to convert 50% of it at least if you're thinking 10 years in advance because that's the way it's going. But that's not a bad thing. If you get your head around the value that that's going to bring in so many levels, it's a great thing if you embrace it. It's a new religion. Yeah, and it's, then it's the real opportunity again because, um, you know, if, if I knock on investors' doors asking them to invest in retail at the moment, I don't get many doors opening. Whereas if you change the narrative to sustainable town centre infrastructure investment, all of a sudden there's a conversation to be had. Yeah, and that it sort of brings me on to this uh, a high street and politics, or the you know the the town centres and politics. You can't really separate the two. It is a political and social and commercial and community vision. Neither of you to seem appear to be shy shying away or backing away from the you know where you brush up against politics whether it's regulation or policy making what are your feelings about working with governments and and you know working with this kind of rat's nest of political decision making if you don't mind me calling it that Right. Okay. So let, let's crikey, let's navigate that question. Um, so look, I, I, I represent 
the government in respect of the, I chair the high street task force, but I'm not here to necessarily sell the government's agenda. But I do, irrespective my politics or anybody else's politics i do think they are taking it seriously they wouldn't have set the high street task force up otherwise and they wouldn't be putting the sort of money into it as as they as they are um but there are a lot of levers that need to be pulled to facilitate this investment that we need so we have a way of taxing town center property which is not fit for purpose um we have issues around the way leases work um there's so much the government can do in addition to facilitate this and you are seeing that come through. Um, you know, there's been a big change in the planning planning laws. They're reforming the planning laws for the first time in 60 years in a comprehensive way. You know, they will get things wrong, undoubtedly. But the intention is there, and that's why I was proud to be asked and proud to be involved because, you know, it's never been more required. And this is, you know, and I can't wait for five years for a sort of a more uh, aligned political uh, imperative, perhaps. I just want to get on and help. Um, and that's why yeah. I'm very happy to be involved. Amazing. And what's your experience been so far? Is is it as bureaucratic as I imagine it might be? Is it is are there lots of committees and red tapes? Do you, you know as a commercial guy, do you find this this area of the world um, it, it must operate very differently? I think it's interesting. So Alan's got a lot of experience of working with the Scottish Towns Partnership, which is led by a guy called Phil Prentice, who's actually from Northern Ireland. And Phil's brilliant, but because and this is an advantage that devolved administrations have have, because they're small, uh, they have the opportunity of making change happen more rapidly. So, you know, the Welsh government, the Scottish government, the Northern Irish government have just set up a high street task force, and they get first minister involvement. You know, it comes from the top and the person at the top is engaged with making that change happen. So some of the moves that they're making in Scotland are market leading and Phil is on the High Street Task Force board in England so we can learn best practice from Scotland. You know, it, it is unfortunately just the nature of the beast in Whitehall and it is such a big beast that departments are more balkanised between MHCLG who actually look after planning and communities, Bays is business who look after the retailers, then you've got Treasury obviously rates taxes etc and you know in an ideal world we'd like to see it more coordinated for sure um, and that is an opportunity that they do have in the devolved administrations so they're a bit more nimble than we are what's your experience been like alan dealing with policy makers local government town councils it's mixed I mean, the majority of our work is uh, outside scotland even though we're based there uh, it's across the uk and um, right. so the same statements that mark's just said I would point out that Scotland is, is, is quite different um, and hopefully in a positive way soon. They've just released the review of the Town Centre Town Centre Action Plan, which is recommendations to government. And and these are uh, shock horror for some people if they were to be applied, but they are sensible when you think about it in many ways. So they're, they're suggesting a moratorium on out-of-town and edge-of-town development which won't mean that nothing gets done, but it really has to be rigorously proven that it's required. Um, the, the, one of the recommendations is taxing or uh, charging uh, for parking in out-of-town places being applied. And this is all to level the playing field with town centre. Um, and they have a whole raft of these suggestions and recommendations, which uh, I've no reason to believe that most of them won't be taken on board. And if they are, then I, I would say, Mark, they're probably we ahead of where England's prepared to go at the moment, but then 
maybe the current uh, government in Scotland is, is is more minded in that way. And with Scotland's Towns Partnership, Phil Prentice, who's on Mark's uh, board, is rallying the troops around a cause, which is town centres, in a way that people come from Europe, uh, Northern Europe, to come over and see what's happening in Scotland with the town centres. So... Yeah. I'm hopeful and op- optimistic. Well, you know, it's, I think it's fair to say that the High Street Task Force is here specifically to make, to empower local government with a framework of how to deliver change. So that's one of the really exciting things. And again, I can say this as an investor, and Alan alluded to this earlier, if you've got a place that's, you know, got its thinking together, to put it politely, and has a vision, it's a lot easier to engage with and invest in that place than it would be if... Um, if there's, if there's an absence of vision, if there's an absence of purpose, and an absence, we haven't, what we haven't talked about, actually, which we're running out of time, is leadership. Leadership is absolutely central to all of this. There needs to be that one person, normally one person, who is that flag bearer, who's that flag waver, who is that lodestar for making things happen within that community. And it doesn't have to be a politician. It doesn't necessarily even have to be somebody who... Um, works with the local authority it just needs to be a, a place champion i think is probably the best way of putting it who does that person usually where does that person come from well there's a, there's a really good example if, if every town had a tame billionaire the world would be a better place but um if you look at what roger dehan and his family have done in folkestone so he sold the saga business to private equity and took out a billion quid and he's personally leading the regeneration of folkestone and that investment is bringing more investment in from other people, for example. I mentioned Stockton. That plan and that vision was delivered by the CEO at the time of the local authority, Neil Schneider, who, again, is a very you know, inspirational leadership that has created these these interventions. So it can be commercial, it can be government or civil, right? People could come from either. I wanted to see if we could do a short sort of thought experiment. Is there a, a version of fantasy football with urban regeneration where you could go, where is it really working? Either in the UK or around the world, like if you could take a bit of best in class housing and retail from somewhere else and a bit of, you know, the, the best versions of, you know, I know you guys both are fans of food halls when it works and when it's appropriate. Would you be able to pick and choose your favourites from different towns and cities and high streets around the Brit- Britain or the world and then make your fantasy urban centre? Is that a, is that a realistic challenge? Places like uh, Rosalier in, in, in Belgium are often cited where they're reclaiming parking, a huge parking area to become uh, you know open public space. They've managed to get the brand of the town right. And it's a really interesting parallel for me because it's... Uh, it's an old threadmill town of the same size as Paisley, which is an old threadmill town and post-industrial town. And I suppose, Mark, you'll give an example of what you think has been successful. Well, I, I, rather than a single place, I think it's an attitude that I think is resonating with a lot of people. So Anne Hildago, who's the mayor of Paris, has uh, her team have coined this concept of a 20-minute city, which doesn't mean... Paris becomes a 20-minute city, but within Paris there will be a number of 20-minute cities. And this idea is that everybody should be able to access all their wants and needs within 20 minutes on public transport or on a bicycle. And so that means, you know, boosting the places. You know, it's almost taking some of the emphasis away from 
the, the massive urban centre and empowering local communities around Paris. But you can take the same methodology, uh, methodology and apply it to a town. You know, COVID's been dreadful, dreadful, dreadful on so many different levels, but it has undoubtedly led to a growth in community, community engagement and the idea of localism and really caring about your place, um, you know, which feeds really nicely into this 20-minute city, 20-minute neighbourhood idea. Um, so that's a, that's a movement, a global movement that um, uh, I think will be adopted more and more. That sounds fascinating, but does that not, not go against grouping everything into a town centre and fragmenting it a little bit more around neighbourhoods? Not really, no, yeah, but it, you're always going to have the, the gravity of a, of a main place. Um, mm -hmm. It's about not having it surrounded with nothing except housing. This is adopted into uh, Scottish uh, government policy, uh, I think it's the 15 minute uh, town. And most of our towns, you can you, you you can walk from the centre to the edge within fifteen minutes. Yeah, I was going to say you just picked up on a really important point again. One one of the sort of big myths of placemaking is that residential is the answer, the sole answer. Um, you do sort of see this narrative in place. Well, well, if we build six hundred flats in this town centre, it's going to be transformative, and it isn't always by any stretch of the imagination. There's a very good way of creating a dormitory town, for example, where people still get on the train. And go into London, Birmingham, Glasgow, what have you. Um, that that serves no community. Just having a load of people who sleep there. It's not the answer. It's part of the answer. But what I'm really interested in, correct, is what type of residential, and particularly for later living, because you know, Mike, we've talked about this before. The passion that I have for reacting against where we build retirement villages in the middle of nowhere with fake high streets when we have our bloody high streets sitting there empty and these are the high streets and this is a landscape the theatre of the shared stories of a community that the, the 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 older generation will never forget or will forget last in a dementia challenge uh, condition the, this is the place where they can go and have opportunity to be stimulated and have an equality of access to services and opportunity in a, in a cross-generational environment the way that it used to be and should be. So I'm really interested in how do we take this opportunity we've been landed with and given uh, to do the right thing by our older generation. And let's face it, there's three people in this interview running out of time to get this right. The interesting thing as well is that the, the purpose, I think, is for place, but also for the people in, in a place as well. And, and I imagine your purpose diminishes the further you go from uh, an active role in an active um, neighbourhood or town centre. Yeah. I mean, Alan's 100% correct in what he's saying about multi-generational living, multi-tenure living, all sorts of things. We need this variety, this richness of people living in a town centre, but it's not, not, not an argument that's been won. There's famously a couple of developments recently which have been turned down in town centres because they spoke too late to living and in their error the local authority has decided that, that would not lead to town centre vitality because this idea that old folk aren't as vital is it's rubbish. I mean they've got more time, they've got more money, they tend to shop locally, they tend to use local services, they are the ideal people to be bringing back into our town centre. Why stick older folk who don't want to drive in out of centre locations 
with no access to public transport, it's 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 appalling. Um, and again, it's another one of the massive opportunities we have to promote really great structural and societal change. This is the opportunity is to combat uh, isolation and equality issues that we have in our society. This is the physical battleground we have as our town centres, because at the moment. These run-down town centres are the province of low-car ownership groups, which tend to be uh, the sections of society with the least affluence, whether it's the young or the old or the unemployed. And we will not get society fixed until we have all of society living together in the town centres. Superb, guys. It's a human story in the end. We are out of time. I cannot thank you enough. It's been a brilliant conversation. Loved hearing um, from both of you. Thanks so much, uh, Mark Robinson and Alan Anthony. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Sounds Like is a podcast brought to you by the horse's mouth. Sound-loving, brand-building, conversation-starting audio evangelists on a mission to help brands build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, their teams, fans, and customers. Thanks to our amazing audio producer, Alex Kenning, tech and everything in between, Jez Gooden. The show's theme music was written and produced by the magnificent Will Flisk. Advisors to the horse's mouth on all things marketing and content, Elliot Hu and Steve Keeney. And I'm Mike Benson. Thanks for listening. Find us at thehorsesmouth.co or wherever you listen to podcasts. The world's listening. Start the conversation.